Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Beyond the Abstract. I'm Dan, here with Derek. How have you been in the hospital? You've been pretty busy, yeah? Oh my god, I forgot how hard med school is. It's so hard. Honestly, like, extremely tiring, and it's fun, and it's, like, nice being in a new environment and learning new things, but damn, it's really hard. Missing those PhD days of... No end in sight, just wallowing from experiment to experiment. That's what you're missing? I mean, a little bit. At least I didn't have to set an alarm in the morning. <laughs> I know, I just finished surgery, and I don't want to repeat the hours of some of those alarms. We're talking early fours. Yeah, oh my god, that sounds terrible. Glad that's done. What was surgery like? Any standout moments? Honestly, it was pretty fun. Apart from the notorious lifestyle, which was definitely true, waking up early and going around the hospital, waking up patients at 5 a.m. to ask them if they've uh, farted. It's really <laughs> glamorous work, but honestly, super satisfying to be able to concretely fix problems, which we don't do in a lot of other areas of medicine or certainly in uh, PhD work, which is uh, much more long-term investment. Okay, so it sounds like pro, you saw a lot of cool surgeries and had a big impact. Cons, you're basically a glorified poop alarm. So that's about right. Uh, I <laughs> heard you had some uh, champagne success in the hospital, yeah? Yeah, I only told um, everyone within a 100-mile radius. You only mentioned it about five times, so... Yeah, I had a really cool moment where my team let me do a lumbar puncture, where you, like, sample a little bit of the cerebrospinal fluid. It's also called a spinal tap. But yeah, they let me do it, and the entire time while I was setting up, for the procedure, I was just like really, really nervous. The patient was going to ask me if it was my first time doing it. And I would have to say, yeah, this is my first time doing this. Thankfully, he didn't. And I got what is called a champagne tap, which means I didn't get any red blood cells in my sample. And it was really nice. My resident bought me a little bottle of champagne to celebrate. It was cute. That's awesome. Well, it's crazy that all of these procedures at some point was someone's first surgery or someone's first uh, spinal tap, and it's just doing it under good supervision. Yeah, I'm thinking of calling it quits after this, though. This way I can retire being like, 100% of my spinal taps were champagne taps. <laughs> <laughs> well, it sounds like you aren't going in to neurology. So I think you will have a lifetime record of 100% champagne tap success. So speaking of the nervous system, we've got a great article today. It's called APOE4 impairs myelination via cholesterol dysregulation in oligodendrocytes. It appeared in the journal Nature in November of this past year from the Kellison Psi groups at MIT. All right, Derek, so what was the original motivation for the study? The original motivation for the study wasn't actually in the title of the article, funnily enough. It was to better understand the genetic risk factors of Alzheimer's disease. So Alzheimer's is a pretty devastating neurodegenerative condition affecting tens of millions of people worldwide. The current treatments are not particularly effective. And this is mostly because we have a pretty incomplete understanding of the underlying biological changes in the brain that led to the disease. 
What we do know is that Alzheimer's is highly genetic, in fact, about as genetic as height, which suggests that if we can understand Alzheimer's genetic risk factors, we might be able to better understand key biology and develop new effective treatments. So what do we know about the genetic risk factors for Alzheimer's disease? It's pretty interesting. Broadly, we can think of there being two groups of genetic risk factors. One group is the distributed small changes across the genome, kind of how like there isn't one height gene, but rather a lot of little changes across the genome that contribute to height. And the other type of genetic risk factor for Alzheimer's comes from a single pretty famous gene called APOE. It's spelled A-P-O-E. The high-risk version of the gene is called APOE4, and relative to having two copies of the common version called APOE3, having two copies of APOE4 puts you at about a 10 times increased risk, so it's a huge risk factor. Okay, so this sounds pretty important to understand because we know that Alzheimer's is strongly genetic, and if we can understand the genetic patterns behind it, we can better understand what's going on biologically, and develop better treatments. And within the genetics, it sounds like there's one very strong genetic risk factor, and it's this form of the gene APOE called APOE4. And if you are unlucky enough to inherit two copies of APOE4, you're at a greatly increased risk for developing Alzheimer's. So this sounds like a really important problem to try to solve to understand what APOE is doing to increase risk for Alzheimer's. So what's the current state of our understanding here? Do we know how APOE4 increases risk for Alzheimer's? The short answer is we don't, and that's what this paper is about. We know that APOE helps transport fats around the body. That's the main function of the gene. And we know that APOE4 changes the shape of the APOE protein and affects its interaction with fats. We also know that APOE4 causes problems with lipid handling in brain cells, but we don't know how this dysregulated lipid movement leads to the pathological brain changes seen in Alzheimer's, and we don't know if this could be targeted therapeutically. Okay, so it sounds like there's a lot to answer about how APOE increases risk for Alzheimer's. So where did the team start in trying to understand how APOE4 causes problems in Alzheimer's? The first step was really a sanity check. They analyzed brain tissue from people with the APOE4 mutation and looked at changes in lipid-related gene expression. They wanted to make sure that these genes were actually changed, and they confirmed that they were. And they zeroed in on changes in a particular type of cell in the brain called an oligodendrocyte, where they saw some of these lipid-related changes. Gotcha. So... Can you remind us all, what is an oligodendrocyte and why does it matter for brain disease? So cells in the brain can be divided into two groups, neurons, which do the communicating and fire off those brain signals, and other types of cells which help neurons do this job, called glial cells. One important type of glial cell is called oligodendrocytes. The job of oligodendrocytes is to make a special covering for neurons called myelin. So myelin is this covering um, on neurons that's largely made up of lipids. What it does is it helps neurons fire really effectively. So the researchers focused on the potential role of APOE4 in messing up lipids in this special type of cell, where lipids are really important for it to function properly. 
I see. So they focused on lipid-related changes in these oligodendrocytes with the E4 mutation. So the idea is that E4 changes lipid handling, and we know that oligodendrocytes need lipids to function properly. So what did they find when they looked closer here? First, they found that in oligodendrocytes with the APOE4 mutation, lipids weren't moving to the right place in the cell. They found that lipids were being trapped in these mutated cells. And at the same time, they also found that in the brains of people with the APOE4 mutation, there was less expression of genes related to myelin synthesis and less myelin, meaning that these oligodendrocytes weren't really making the proper covering for neurons. Really interesting. So it seems like they're starting to gather some circumstantial evidence that something is amiss, that with the E4 mutation, lipids aren't moving to the right place in these key cells, and there seems to be impaired myelin synthesis and less myelin. But how did they know that problems in the oligodendrocytes cause the myelin issues and not the E4 mutation acting in some other type of cell, for example? Yeah, that's a really important question, especially since the mutation is in every single cell in the body, right? That's just kind of how these types of mutations work. They performed a really cool experiment to show this, and probably my favorite part of the study. They created neurons with and without the APOE4 mutation and oligodendrocytes with and without the APOE4 mutation, and they grew them together in combinations and looked for which combinations caused issues. When they combined the problematic neuron with an oligodendrocyte that was completely normal, the myelin was normal, so there weren't really any huge issues. But when they did the opposite, where they had a normal neuron, but an oligodendrocyte with the mutation, less myelin developed, demonstrating that the APOE4 mutation in the oligodendrocytes is what's mainly causing the issue. That's super clever. So they could figure out, using these combinations, which cell type was the problem for this mutation. Is there any way they could try to fix these cholesterol issues, maybe with a drug that helps cholesterol stop collecting problematically in the cell? Yeah, that's a really good question. So the idea here being, if we could prevent cholesterol from getting trapped, maybe we could actually fix some of the issues underlying Alzheimer's. And that's what they did. They added a drug called cyclodextrin, which is known to help cholesterol move properly throughout the cell. When they did this to the mutated APOE4 oligodendrocytes, the amount of myelin increased significantly. That's really exciting. So it seems like they were able to fix the problem caused by the APOE4 mutation in the oligodendrocytes by adding this drug. And because they improved the amount of myelin that was created, they know that it is exactly something in this cholesterol pathway that's causing the issue because the drug they added is known to work in the cholesterol pathway. So did they take it any further to test in an animal model or even in, uh, in humans? You know me, a paper isn't a real paper unless mice are involved. So of course, they used mice with APOE mutations and gave them this drug, and they found that this drug increased myelin growth significantly, and they found that it also improved learning and memory in these mice, which is quite something. I love a good learning and memory experiment in mice. They're always funny to read about because they have them doing funny little tasks of running around mazes and 
jumping through obstacles. I'm sure that's your uh, uh, favorite thing to do with them, Derek. Honestly, when I think about it, I'm not sure I could do much better than a mouse. (laughs) Mazes are hard. Gotta give it to them. Mazes are hard. I agree. So all of this is very exciting. And I'm curious if there's been any work taking the insights from these studies or questions about APOE4 and translating them to, uh, to humans. So this study showed that the APOE4 mutation acts like what is called a loss of function mutation, meaning that this mutation causes the gene to be not functional at all. This suggests that replacing it with a functional copy could actually help. There was a recent early stage clinical trial in humans that did exactly that. The early results were shared at the clinical trials on Alzheimer's disease conference back in December, and it generated quite a bit of buzz and was even covered by the New York Times. They used a form of gene therapy to deliver a healthy functional copy of APOE to five individuals with mutated APOE4, and they found that the therapy lowered levels of disease protein markers around their brains, and this is still very early, but super, super exciting. That's really cool. and. You know, there's been so little effective therapy for Alzheimer's. There's been a lot of controversy around a recently approved biogen drug, which seems only modestly effective and has a lot of side effects and is very expensive. And yeah, it costs like a bajillion dollars in your firstborn child. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And overall seems fairly shady. So any new progress, particularly in this high-risk genetic variant APOE4 is super exciting. So overall, Derek, what did you think were some of the strengths and weaknesses of the study? Yeah, so I thought there were a lot of really cool aspects of this paper. One of the things is just the amount of data and the variety of data. They used single-cell gene expression profiles of post-mortem human brains, so you know people who have died um, with Alzheimer's disease. They used cell culture models and stem cells to generate these various types of cells in the brain. And of course, my favorite, they used a mouse model as well. There are a few weaknesses, however, so we still don't know how these APOE myelination deficits leads to the pathological hallmarks of Alzheimer's or to the symptoms of Alzheimer's. That's kind of still a mystery, you know? It's likely that this is just one piece of the puzzle and we'll have to keep digging to really find out, um, you know, what it is about APOE4 that contributes to Alzheimer's. That's great. Well, I think this is a really important study in looking at how these uh, high-risk genetic variants confer risk and also that we were able to talk about the gene therapy trials. Super exciting. All right, Derek. Well, that was a great study. Thanks for sharing and for chatting. Yeah, Dan, thanks for talking about this. Catch you on the next one. So um, keep you guys posted on progress in this area. Yeah. I mean, in the meantime, you'll find me chugging cyclodextrin. So (laughs) catch me outside.
kidding. I'm not putting that in. <laughs> See you in the hospital. Hospitalized in the SICU for psychodextrin. Yeah. Oh, God. Brutal.